Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. This week, I'm joined again by Dan Herms. He's the Vice President of Research and Development for the Davy Tree Expert Company in Kent, Ohio. And today we're talking about something that I know nothing about, and I am looking forward to learning about it, called forest fragmentation. Good morning, Dan. How are you? And tell me a little bit about what that is. Well, good morning, Doug. And um, I'm doing well, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning. When forests are cleared for agriculture, development, so forth, it often leaves small pockets or islands of the um, remnant forest, isolated patches of forest. We call these forest fragments. From your standpoint uh, in your studies, what does that mean for, for the forest? Well, fragmenting the forest has, uh, you know, a multitude of, of impacts that kind of changed the nature uh, of the forest from what it was as a, a large intact forest. So for example, one of the biggest and maybe most obvious effects is that there's a lot more edge habitat to a forest fragment and much less interior deep forest habitat. So um, the ratio of forest edge to forest interior is much greater in a in a forest fragment and this has a lot of important implications for the, the habitat the biodiversity the environment um, you know at the edge of a forest there's more light there's uh, the temperatures are higher soils are, are drier the the ground vegetation is different often more sh uh, shrubbier more woody vegetation um, in the interior forest, it tends to be more open. It's cooler, moister um, environment. Uh, it's you know it's it's very different, and so these these have really important implications for biodiversity and wildlife. So the forest edge, for example, is much more susceptible to invasion by exotic plants. So invasive plants don't for the most part, don't tend to be uh, shade tolerant. They're, they're, they need more light, things like multiflora rose, honeysuckle, these kind of things we're probably familiar with. Um, there's more kind of generalist animals, deer, raccoons, blue jays, these kind of things. And the species that are adapted to the interior forest don't do as well um, think salamanders flying squirrels these kind of things are just not going to find um, on the edge and, and as abundance and then there's more predators uh, of, of birds and things around the edge domestic cats raccoons um, cowbirds so cowbirds parasit parasitize the nests of native songbirds and that is um, has a, you know a, a negative impact. The cowbirds don't tend to be deep in the forest, but they're kind of an edge species. 
Well, I mean, it, it just makes sense that when you change a big, expansive forest, you know, in that manner, that it's going to it's going to be certainly affect the environment, affect the the wildlife in there. What do you think can be done about it, though? What can we? Is there something we can do? It should be. Should we plan differently? Would it? Would that help? As far as you know, you cert. You know, when you hear the word clear cut, you, you think Amazon forest, but that's what you would do here. You'd probably clear cut the forest for a new development or something. I, I guess, right? Well, that's what's happened over time. So, you know, think about the urban environment. So, you know, over years and years, the, the forest has been cleared away for, you know, for buildings and it leaves, you know, these, uh, you know, woodlots and isolated forest patches. And you see those on the agricultural landscape too, where you'll see a, a woodlot, you know, that's surrounded by large agricultural fields. So it's, it's a process that happens, you know, over time and, uh, but what you know what can can be done so um you know there are are things and and i will say that forest fragments do have benefits especially in urban environments for biodiversity and so forth um, if these fragments can be connected studies have shown that this enhances the biodiversity the number of species it reduces the risk of local extinction so forest fragments can be connected by corridors, say riparian corridors, um, even utility right-of-way corridors can serve as a, a connection that animals and plants can disperse along. Um, they can be connected. It can reduce inbreeding as the populations spread. The shape is really important. So a long, let's say a 20 acre woodlot, if it's long and narrow, all of that will be edge yeah right yeah but if it's if it's round or square there'll be a acre or two in the interior that is you know really characteristic of an interior forest habitat so trying to reduce the amount of edge is important the and the more it resemble the more a forest fragment resembles and has the characteristics of an interior forest the more benefits we'll have for things like uh, in the urban environment, reducing urban heat, purifying rainwater, and reducing runoff, storing carbon, uh, providing a refuge for biodiversity, um, insects, plants, birds, small mammals, these kind of things. In the urban environment woodlots provide a really important uh, refuge for migratory birds a way station where they can rest and feed as they're traveling to and from their uh, breeding grounds for example so you mentioned a lot of interesting things in there i was wondering about the connecting of the fragments how is that done by tree planting or or how how is that done and, and does it have to be like if you connect them, does it have to be like a solid forest? Is that is that just fill me in on the on the connection part? How that works? Well, there are different ways that that fragments can be connected, but um, you know the ideal would be a a forest corridor 
say something that's uh, preserved along a stream or something that could connect one corridor to another. It could be a planned corridor, um, you know, a rail trail that maintains, for example, uh, a, 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 a tree environment that's, you know, wide enough to provide a, a corridor of sorts for birds and, and butterflies and things. Um, you know, maintaining a, a, a utility corridor in such a way that it has some habitat, tree habitat on the edges, native plants growing in, in the corridor, uh, in the uh, right away, you know, these kind of things. Linear parks could be designed in such a way to provide a corridor. I have to think that in city planning, urban planning, uh, even suburban town planning, that this is something that should be considered. And, and is it being considered? Increasingly, it is. The, the importance of, of corridors, wildlife corridors, are being, is recognized and is being incorporated into habitat management. I was at a, a conference and there was a whole symposium on establishing corridors to link habitats, for example, and creating a network of, of corridors and, and fragments. How is this something that you started to study? How, how would this come into your realm? So I think it, I'll say I started studying it when I was a child because, you know, and I think that's another benefit. These, these urban uh, woodlots, there was one close to my home and we explored and played and looked for creatures. And to us, that was the wilderness. <laughs> and then, you know, in, in college, I studied forest ecology and, you know, some fragmentation was, was a big part of that. When I was a professor at Ohio State University, we did a lot of research in forest fragments. For example, studying um, the effects of emerald ash borer, ash mortality in forest fragments, and what impact that had on amphibians, what impact that had on birds, on uh, invasive plant species. So I've um, had a connection with, with forest fragments um, uh, for a while. My wife and I are involved in in a, um, a local park that is a, a, a green space, a green island of forest uh, in our, our city and trying to enhance the benefits of that, reducing invasive species, um, looking at butterfly conservation and so forth. So if you could, I know a little bit about the town that you live in. Explain what kind of if you could, just what size town that is, and then how big is that area for that site for that town? So I live in I live just outside of Worcester, Ohio, and it's a town of about uh, twenty three thousand people. And the park that I'm referring to is called Worcester Memorial Park, and it is now over four hundred acres in size. So it's it's a large green area. If you look at Google Earth, you see it's one of the largest green uh, islands in uh, this this part of the state. And it um, is big enough that it has some really nice interior forest habitat and, and the wildflowers, the wildlife and so forth that you might expect, the owls, um, 
other species. So it's, it's a really nice habitat. Um, it's isolated. So, it, you know, it's, a, it's an island, but it's a large island. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm just picturing, you know, a one acre square in the middle of the town. But 400 acres is, is huge. Talk a little bit about the invasive species and getting them out of there. That's imp- is that important? It is really important. And the volunteers, the Friends of Worcester Memorial Park, have been very active in removing invasive species. So in, co- in cooperation with the city that owns the park, the, the volunteers have engaged in um, campaigns to pull out the garlic mustard for example, which is an important invasive species, um, eliminate the multiflora rose, the honeysuckle, the autumn olive. Those are probably the biggest in, um, problem species in that park. The, the garlic mustard is um, an interesting example because it is an invasive species, but there, there's an endemic butterfly in the park called the West Virginia white. And the West Virginia white exists in these isolated patches. Most of its large forest habitat has been, you know, broken up and fragmented. And there's a really nice population of the West Virginia white. And the West Virginia white's native host plant is the, called a plant called uh, cutleaf toothwort. It's a, a native wildflower, but it lays its eggs also on garlic mustard. Hmm. And this is referred to, a, well, this is not a good thing because the, the larvae cannot survive to adulthood on garlic mustard. So the, the butterfly gets tricked into laying its egg on a, a bad host plant. It's an ecological trap. And so eliminating the garlic mustard has been really important for conserving this um, species, which is a threatened, uh, it's a a species of concern. It's not endangered, but it's a threatened species. So let me see if I have this right. That's not the right plant for the butterfly to lay its eggs on because when the larvae uh, emerge, they can't eat it, right? They wouldn't want to eat garlic mustard. Is that right? That they'll eat it, but they they get sick. Uh. And so this this is work that a, a friend and colleague of mine, Don Cipollini, professor at Wright State University in Ohio, has has studied with his uh, graduate students. So it in this is one thing that people could do to to, to help, you know, in their own in their own communities to find, uh, you know an area like that or, or any area you could find and, and work on getting rid of that, something like that garlic mustard. You, you guys down there need to have like a garlic mustard festival when they're in the rosette stage and turn that into something you can eat, get it all out of the forest and make pesto out of it. Well, you know, garlic mustard is an edible plant and it's thought that it was brought to the United States originally as a, a kind of a garden herb. So, and I have seen recipes for garlic mustard. Well, um, I hate, I hate, I hate to say this, but I've I've made it into pesto before. It, it's it's such a a pain in. I've got I I just live on a four acre patch of forest, and I spend a lot of time pulling that stuff out because, you know, I I I don't want it in the in the forest for 
and especially now after after hearing uh, that it's fooling uh, that butterfly. But I spend a lot of time, especially at the at the that first year when it makes the rosette. If I see it, it I want to get rid of it. Uh, yeah. talk, talk if you don't mind. Talk a little bit about its life cycle so that people know, you know how to how to deal with it. In my opinion, I love to get it at that rosette stage. You don't always get them at that stage, but if I see it, I got to get to it before it sets seed. So garlic mustard is an herbaceous uh, perennial, very shade tolerant, uh, moist soils. It, it does very well in the interior. Forest. So it's an invasive plant that can crowd out the native wildflowers. The life cycle is that it has a two-year, typically a two-year life cycle. So the first year it germinates and grows into a rosette and it will overwinter. You go out in the forest and you'll see the green rosettes during the winter time if they're not covered by snow. And then the following spring, they'll uh, bolt. And by that, I mean they'll form a, uh, they'll grow very fast, a long stalk with white flowers. Happens very early. They're already, they're already blooming in, in Ohio. They produce seeds and they um, wither away uh, pretty rapidly. So, you know, that, that's the problem. You have to, to weed them very quickly in the spring, oftentimes when you're busy with other things. You know, exactly. You know, you're, you're overwhelmed with the garden. I, this is me, you know, I'm overwhelmed with the garden, but if I see those blooms, I'm after it. Uh, I, you know, it just, if I can just spend an hour or two pulling, it will save me so much the next year. Yes. You know, and for those folks that are not averse to using um, herbicides, you can actually treat the rosette during the winter time when it's it's green and the other plants are not present. So the wildflowers are, are gone. So you can uh, studies have shown that you can treat with glyphosate as long as the temperature is above freezing. So it doesn't freeze in your sprayer spray in February, January. You won't see any real effect until the following spring. The plants will wither away rather than bolting. And so that, you know, that can be an approach for clearing large areas. But one of the advantages, and to get back to your original question about the small woodlot, is that you can make a difference pretty quickly in terms of eliminating invasive plants. If you have four or five acres, you can get in there. You can eliminate the invasive plants. You can reintroduce new plants. You have a very tractable, uh, manageable chunk in which you can have um, some real benefits in terms of enhancing biodiversity, re restoring some of the, the natural ecological um, interactions and, and species. So with your park there, why why you to be part of that project i you must you have a lot going on you're a scientist you're studying this you've got you know working for davy why you to be part of that project on that 400 acres well uh that's just a really good question my my wife is the president of the friends group that helps that helps and she's actually written six um grants to the state of Ohio, it's called the Clean Ohio 
grant program, which has purchased about 250 acres that has increased the size of that park dramatically. Uh, we, it's um, just a wonderful place to hike and we have just felt um, like it's, it's, it's a valuable and worthwhile thing to be involved in. Well, Dan, I'm going to leave it right there. That is so awesome. That is so good. And as always, thank you so much for the information. You know, I love picking your brain. Uh, I was worried about this topic because I, I don't know anything about it. And, and I was I was wondering, gosh, if any, I knew if anybody could put it into perspective for me, it was you, Dan. So thanks again for being part of the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure, Doug. I always learn something new when talking to Dan, and good for him and his wife for helping their local park. My brother lives in Columbus. That might give me an opportunity to actually see that forest. I'm intrigued. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Do me a favor. Subscribe to the podcast. We have a lot of fun as we cover these important topics. As always, we'd like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer.